When I was a child, my parents would stick my brother and my sister and me in the car, and we would head up toward North Georgia to a little town called Cartersville. It's not too small anymore. It has become this bedroom community to Atlanta, one of many. But back then, it was a very rural place, and my grandparents lived on a farm there that they did not own themselves. They were tenant farmers, and they lived on that property most of their lives. It was an interesting thing to go visit them because it was taking a step into another culture, another world, it seemed to me. Uh, We were living um, in Macon for a period of that time that I'm remembering, and also in Metter. And life was very different even in those places to what I was going to see of my grandparents. We would travel up to Cartersville, and when we got out of the car, it was this old, old frame house uh, that became our home for the next few days. I can remember my grandmother When she needed water, she would walk out onto the porch and then toward the back of the house, at which point she would meet with the well, the deep well that they had, and she would let the bucket down into the deep well and then wind it back up and get the water that we needed and bring it in. And then she would put it on top of the stove, which was a pot-bellied version that was fired with wood that they had cut and split themselves. This sounds like Abraham Lincoln or something, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, But it's the truth. I I was a little boy, and I can remember, um, I can remember they had the old galvanized tin tub, and they'd stick us in there on Saturdays before going to church on Sunday, you know, that kind of thing. And, but even to me at that point, it was just such a very different world. I mean, it was, it was very, very different. But it was the world that they knew. Um, I can remember that we would go and my grandfather and grandmother were cotton farmers for the most part. They planted a few other things, but their main crop was cotton. And when we would go to visit them, that there was no cotton picker in the field, no machinery out there. Um, They would pick it by hand, and they would gather up as many people as they could to assist with the process. My father tells about that uh, more than I uh, ever experienced. I can remember when we would go and visit that my grandfather would would put up with having these grandchildren around and one day particularly I remember that we were in the field and I was recounting this with my father just just not too long ago and and I said I can remember granddaddy uh, picking cotton and he smiled and he said that was a rare event most of the time he wanted to manage what was done not to pick it <laughs> um, and i said but i said i remember i remember that he had and all everybody that was picking had these croaker sacks that were, were around their shoulders and they were pulling those behind them and they would put the cotton down in the croaker sack and and i remember that that he allowed me to sit on the end of his croaker sack as he pulled me through the field while he was picking cotton 
you talk about a wonderful chariot ride that was for a, for a little boy. I remember that when we went to see uh, my grandparents that I was never aware of them being in need, although I know that they must have been. They lived a very simple uh, lifestyle. Um, they didn't talk about being poor. Um, it was not in the conversation ever, ever that I remember. Um, it was as if they didn't know that they were poor. Do you remember situations like that? It was as if they did not know that they were poor. I can tell you that, that they didn't have much at all. But what they had was a generous plenty to a young boy who saw the, the nature of what they were seeking to provide for us as we showed up and joined in their poverty. I can remember Cartersville as this place that housed an oven out of which the most heavenly biscuits emanated. It was just just heaven on earth to eat the biscuits that my grandmother prepared. My mother made good biscuits. Sue makes good biscuits. <laughs> but let me tell you, these biscuits were the most wonderful things ever to put in your mouth. And I can remember that forever there was, when they actually got them an electric stove, they forever had in that deep well. Now, some of you don't know what a deep well is, but it was sort of the thing that existed before these slow cookers came into being, these crock pots. But it was on the stove, and it was, it was below the surface of the stove. And she forever had pinto beans that were simmering in that deep well. And she served those biscuits and those pinto beans and chow chow. Do y'all know what chow chow is? Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm hungry now. <laughs> I fell in love with these three foundational food elements, chow chow and biscuits and pinto beans and have loved them ever since because there was just this sense in being there in Cartersville with the sufficiency of it all. How could that be? They had so little. How could that be? I love the story that Howard Hanger tells about a child that came home from kindergarten to his mother, and when he entered the door, he asked the question, are we rich? And she looked at him and she said, why do you ask? And he said that the children were talking about it at school and they were saying that people who are rich have more fun. And she thought just a minute before she responded and she said, you know, she said, that is absolutely right. She said, People who are rich do have more fun. 
But now the problem with that is that there are a lot of different ways to be rich. You can be rich in money. You can be rich in money, of course, but you can be rich in family. You can be rich in time. Uh, for that matter, you can be rich in vegetables. And the child was onto this now, and, and he said, or like us this afternoon, we're rich in chocolate chip cookies, right? <laughs> And, and she smiled and she said, yes, we are. There is a plate of chocolate chip cookies there and we are rich in chocolate chip cookies. It has to do with your perspective, doesn't it? How you're seeing yourself. When John remembered that Jesus spoke of this very subject, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Paul, as he is sharing here, has a certain idea in mind of what it means to be rich, truly rich. Jonathan and I have been preaching on John Wesley and this sermon that John Wesley did not preach once or twice, but preached hundreds of times, hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times over the course of his preaching ministry. This itinerant preacher that moved from place to place would often pull out a sermon that was entitled The Use of Money. And he would speak to the Methodists and he would encourage them in their diligence to make sure that what they were doing was godly in every way. He would say, earn all that you can, but make sure that when you're earning it, that you're doing it in the right way. Save all you can. And then he would cap it off, of course, with that great preacher message, give all you can. If you don't want to hear that one, don't come next week. I want to preach that one next week. But today I want to focus just for a few moments on that middle principle, save all you can. Because that has worked so well for Methodists for so long now. In fact, Methodists got so good at it that it became a worry for John Wesley. When you are disciplined in your way of living, when you are truthful in your way of acting toward other people, you become someone that is dependable, not only in religion, but also in business. Over these last 250 years, Methodists have become a reliable people in many, many ways. John Wesley saw this happening even before his dying day. And it worried him. Why in the world would that worry John Wesley? I mean, the Methodists were being faithful to earn as much as they could and to save as much as they could in order that they might give as much as they could. But for John Wesley, he saw that they had misunderstood what he was talking about when he said, save all you can. John Wesley's concept of saving and our concept of saving is quite different. When we mention the word saving, most of the time we're thinking in terms of special bank accounts. 
It may be that you're thinking in terms of stocks and bonds. It may be that you're thinking in terms of real estate, what you can amass, what you can hold on to in such a way as to make you more able later than to give to the Lord's work a percentage thereof. All of this breaks down right quick, though, John Wesley says, because you and I have the tendency to hold on to far more than we need. Now, come on. Be honest with yourself. When he finally came to his senses about the direction that United Methodists, now United Methodists, then Methodists, the Methodists were going, it frightened him that what we were dealing with was the very death of the church if we did not amend our ways. And so within the last few years of his life, he wrote another sermon. And this one didn't get preached a hundred old times, but it was preached with such fervor, he entitled it The Danger of Riches. And he started it out by saying to those who were in his congregations, he started it out by saying over the course of his 60 years in ministry and his not only preaching sermons, but also listening to others preach sermons, he says, I dare say that I have not heard another sermon preached on this subject in the way that I'm about to preach it to you. He said that from 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6 to 10, this is a passage of Scripture that evidently preachers are seeking to avoid rather than to share. Boy, that'll make you sit up and take notice, won't it? John Wesley said, the problem with our understanding about saving is that you and I have a tendency to not believe the warnings concerning our indulgences. What indulgences? Well, John Wesley got down to brass tacks, and he said the very food that you eat, he said, is indulgent. He said if, if you are longing for those delicacies that have to be purchased at some strain to your budget. Ask yourself not simply how this is affecting your budget, but ask how is it affecting those around you who have less of what you might give. He said, consider what you drink, not just what you eat. Now, in this day and age, those are fighting words, right? Think about everything that we spend on what we drink. The world is built on big gulps and Starbucks and all kinds of places to spend your money on drink. I won't name all of the other locations where you can get a little something to drink, at a hefty price. I mean, you can go, you can go to the, the local convenience store and spend quite a, quite a lot just on purchasing water, can't you? John Wesley said, think about the way in which you are using the money that has been given to your care. The furniture that you have in your house, 
Those things that you've purchased just because you had a notion to set it in the corner of your room, not something that does anything more than just accent the space. How many of you have a chair that you never sit in? He said, the paintings that you hang upon your walls. The books that you have in your library, and he was hitting on himself there. The gardens that you spend so much of your precious money on to beautify your homes. All of this becomes suspect because it has to do not with the care of others or the loving of God, but it has to do with our pride and our contentment in where we are now. Would you, Wesley said, at an earlier age, have even thought about these things when you did not have the resources to pay for them? When you lived with such grace and energy and delight in serving the Lord alone, what has become of that passion in the midst of your wealth? He said, better for you to take the cash and throw it into the sea than to continue like you're going. Because he said, everything that you spend your money on has this life of its own that must be maintained. And it calls for more of your resources in order to keep it going. Am I preaching yet? John Wesley knew our society, even having not lived here in this day and age, he knew who we were. He knew who we were going to be. And as I said, it frightened him about the implications for the church. There was a man back in the 1940s and 50s who made the Methodist circles. His name was Harry Denman. He was a fascinating and odd guy. He became, the, he became the director of the Board of Evangelism for the Methodist Church. His preferred means of travel was Greyhound bus. He would fly to locations if that need to be the case on behalf of the job that he had with the church. But his preferred mode of transportation was the Greyhound bus. He didn't have a car of his own. In fact, it was an interesting lifestyle that he had. When he came to town, he came with a satchel that most people thought was his briefcase and carried his books that he would have used in preparation for the sermon that he might have preached that evening. But if you hung around Harry Denman, you would realize that in that satchel, of course, it, it was a journal that he could use to write his thoughts, but also his Bible. You know what else he had in his 
satchel, everything that he owned. An extra shirt, an extra change of underwear, that was it. You may be asking yourself, well, what about a suit? He was wearing the only suit that he owned. How did he clean his suit? He would go to the local dry cleaner and sit in a back room and wait in his underwear while they cleaned his suit and he would put it back on and then be on his way. Is that odd or what? Now, I know that there are some extremes to which you can take all of this, but God bless Harry Denman, and he did. And what he was seeing as our role, a forgotten role that you and I are called to by the very nature of the founders of this church and our Lord himself. This intentional simplicity that you and I cast off without thinking, it bears much importance. In these words, it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You remember the story of Ebenezer Scrooge is told by Charles Dickens, don't you? And you may say, that was an extreme case. Oh, it was an extreme case. But what Charles Dickens was seeking to point out was the deathliness of the sin of greed and where it will take us if we allow it. In fact, in his talking about this iron-souled man, Charles Dickens described Ebenezer Scrooge in these words, he was secret, self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. Don't you love that? Who wants to be that? Not a one of us. Are we working against the tide of a culture that in some way believes that either the having of money or the striving for money is what life is all about. You and I are called to a greater calling. The love of money is a dangerous affront to the very nature of who we are as God's people. It does not allow us the privilege of loving God the way that we should, nor of loving our neighbors the way that we should if we spend our life loving money. You and I are called to save. But how? Because the second point of that use of money sermon and the third are so interclosedly linked with each other that you cannot tell where the saving ends and the giving begins. You and I are called to be a people of Christ, not just of John Wesley. You and I are called to be a people of Christ who follow this Lord 
who said to those who were inquiring, you remember that the bird has its nest and the fox has its den. Y'all remember what Jesus said? But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This Lord who understood better than any of us the sufficiency of God when we trust him with intentional simplicity of living. The disciples did it for a while. But come to the end of Jesus' life, you remember that Jesus discovered that they were making preparations because of their distrust of what might happen next. Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with a purse, without a purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? No, not a thing, they answered. But they said that in the context of having bags and sandals. And if you read the scripture on a little further, even two swords that they had packed just for insurance. Jesus calls us to be his people of intentional simplicity. Do you seek to follow Jesus? Is it possible, really, to follow Jesus? Is it really possible to do this? John Wesley said at the close of his sermon, you bet it's possible. And the best time to start is now. Now, dear friends, to set right what we have been in the business of making wrong. As we give ourselves to the Lord, let this be a renewal of our hearts, our souls, our life, to earn all we can, save all we can, and give all we can. As we come to the close of our worship, we will be singing together the shortest invitational hymn ever written. <laughs> it has two verses. And I'm not just saying that we're going to sing the first and the last verses. That's all there is, friends, to this hymn. It's over on page 468. It's entitled, Dear Jesus in Whose Life I See. And as we sing these words together, I do want to open this altar for you. Do you feel God pricking your heart to a new understanding of commitment? If you seek to make serious this following of Christ, I want you to know that this altar is open to you. If you've never given your heart fully to God, I'll encourage you to come forward but you will have to run to get here before the song is over, okay? <laughs>
This is not the 18th verse of Just As I Am, okay? <laughs> Two verses and an opportunity for you to come and to kneel and say, Yes, Jesus, I will do my best to live simply in order that you might use me fully for your... simply. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings that we receive. Use us, we pray, as a blessing.